0: 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the famous love chapter. And I like how it ends. Now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. If Paul was the apostle of faith and Peter was the apostle of hope, then guess what? John was the apostle of love. You remember at the end of his gospel, John identified himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John was a person who knew the thrill of being loved by God. And in return, John had a passionate, on fire love for God himself. John was the only one of the 12 apostles who was spared a martyr's death. But it was not because the Roman emperor didn't try. Domitian ordered John to be turned into a French fry, literally boiled in oil. Miraculously, though, the Lord delivered John. And since Domitian couldn't kill him, he was banished to Patmos, that rocky island off the coast of Turkey where John would later receive the revelation. After Domitian's death, John was freed. And he ended his years pastoring the church at Ephesus. And as it turned out, God had preserved John for a very, very important job. A dangerous heresy was spreading. And God knew that a man of John's stature, John's reputation would be needed to squelch this heresy. The evil doctrine of Gnosticism had raised its ugly head. And John writes this letter to stop it in its tracks. Chapter 1 begins. That which was from the beginning... Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. Now here in 1 John, in verse 1, John refers to Jesus as the word, or the logos of life. You see, the Greeks observed the order and the symmetry within nature, Within the universe and from this order and symmetry, they deduced that there had to be a cause behind the cosmos. There had to be a reason behind their reality. The Greek philosophers, they coined a term for this unknown force, this cause, this great unmovable cause. They called it the Word or the Logos. And here John shocks his readers by reporting that he has seen the Logos. In fact, he handled it. He threw his arm around it and it threw his arm around him. And he heard it speak words to him. And he even hugged the Logos. Oh my. What the Greeks thought of as an impersonal force, John knew as a personal friend. John knew that this great cause behind all other causes. This reason behind reality was not an it, but a he, and his name was Jesus. And he writes this letter so that you too can know Jesus and experience the joy and the love that's found in hanging out with Jesus Christ. That's what he says in verse 2. For the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father, And was manifested to us. The meaning of life. The purpose behind all eternity. Is not some cryptic, hidden, mysterious secret. No, the logos has been revealed. The word has been made plain. It's been spoken. And God had the privilege to meet him. The word. And spend three and a half years by his side. He goes on. That which we have seen and heard. We declare to you. That you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now recall verse 1 Jesus is the Word or the Logos of life. He is as alive today as when John embraced Him. And John's intent in writing this letter is for us to enjoy that same relationship that John experienced. You know, I think it's crucial that we identify God's top priority for our lives. What if I ask you a multiple choice question? What is most important? Number one, to get to heaven. Number two, to serve God. Number three, to do God's will. And number four, to know God more. Now, if I asked you that question and I gave you those four choices, which one would you pick? What is most important? What should be your top priority as a believer? Well, it's certainly important to get to heaven. But what about until then? And what are you going to do after you get there, after you've been there for a while? Second, we all want to serve God. But all work and no refreshment sets a person on a path to burnout. And third, certainly life does go better when we live in God's will for our lives. But again, once we're there in His will, then what? That's why the correct answer to that question is number four, to know God more. You see, this is why John writes that we might have fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Hey, I'm glad I'm going to heaven and I love serving the Lord and I do desire with all my heart to walk in His will. But the deeper purpose in my life and for your life is to know God. It's to fellowship with the God who created you. This is the great purpose in life. And when we forget that ultimate goal, it produces a frustration, a disappointment. You see, God's purpose for you is not a location, a heaven. It's not a vocation, some area of service. It's not a situation, doing this or that, even in the will of God. No, Jesus died so that you could have fellowship with the Almighty God, so that you could have communion with God, so that you could come to know the God who created you. Jesus died on the cross so that you could have fellowship with God. The first man, Adam, walked with God in the cool of the day there in the Garden of Eden. What a wonderful experience that must have been, to just go for walks in the afternoon with God. Adam lived his life in a conscious awareness of God's presence. And I believe this is still God's desire for you and me. Hey, when knowing God more is our number one goal, this is when we find the greatest fulfillment. And John puts it, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. You see, a deep down abiding happiness is the byproduct of knowing God and living your life in the awareness of his presence. Verse 5 tells us, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is a person, but he has characteristics that are similar to the properties of light. Light invigorates. Light illuminates. Light warms. Light drives out the darkness. It's light that produces color and beauty. You see, God is not like the light of the moon, a reflected light. No, God is like the light of the sun, a radiant light. He is the source of all love in all purity in all beauty in all truth. You see, God doesn't just abide by a certain standard. No, God is the standard. He sets the standard. God is light. And if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness... We lie, do not practice the truth. Obviously, if God is light, and if we know him, then we'll walk in the light. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, here's how we grow as Christians. We walk in God's light. You know, plants grow by a process called photosynthesis. A plant has cells that transform light into energy. It absorbs the light around it and it uses it to process its food and therefore grow. And likewise, a Christian grows by a process we could call spiritual photosynthesis. Our spirit is designed to absorb the light of God. The presence of Jesus in my life is the catalyst that I use or that you know, essentially takes place in my life. You know, I absorb his light. The Holy Spirit helps me absorb his light in the light of Jesus. Me living in this fellowship with Jesus in the presence of Jesus is the catalyst by which I become more godly and more good and more loving and more kind and more pure, essentially more Christ-like. It's not by me doing anything. It's my me living in the light in absorbing the light of Jesus. We're like plants. We're made up of cells that absorb the light. And as we absorb the presence and fellowship with Jesus, we become like him. This is what 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 tells us. It explains the process as follows. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image From glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Same thing. Living in God's presence has a mirror effect. The more I hang out with God, the more he rubs off on me. You see, remember, it's not up to the plant to grow. The light causes its growth. And it's not up to the Christian to grow himself or herself. Our job is just to stay in the light. And it's in the light of Christ The light of Christ, that's what will fuel a steady and a perpetual growth. This means that Christians need to be spiritual bugs. We do. Have you ever looked out at the porch light in the summertime and watched all the moths and the bugs hover around that light? Well, that's a good picture of what you and I need to be doing as Christians. We need to be like spiritual bugs. We need to literally live in the light of Jesus Christ. We need to be attracted to the light and spend time in the light. We need a spiritual tan, you could say. Some of you sport a nice tan in the summertime. And a tan requires very little effort. You find a nice spot on the beach. You stretch out your towel. You do the rotisserie turn from time to time. And before you know it, you're baked and beautiful. All it took was time and availability. And again, this is how you grow in Christ. Just spend time daily in the light of God's presence. Just read his word and enjoy his comfort. And the God beams, his glory will rub off on you. You see, His light is absorbed into your character and into your disposition when you spend time in His presence and you enjoy His light. Live in God's presence and the blood of Jesus Christ will continually cleanse you, continually purify you. But verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, oh, well, we've deceived ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, here's what hinders the light of God from having its effect on us. It's dishonesty. When you don't maintain a repentant spirit, when you hide your sin or try to cover it up or act self-righteous and you think you no longer need to be changed and purified, such self-deception literally acts as a sunblock. It shuts out the light from my life. There's no such thing as sinless perfection No matter how mature we become in our faith, as long as we inhabit these sin-stained bodies and live in a sin-infested world, we will sin. A Christian is a person who sins less and less, but none of us ever become sinless. It's been said the closest to perfection a person ever comes is when he fills out a job application form. (laughs) In reality, we all sin. But verse 9 tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Once a Catholic priest was hearing the confessional of an older lady. She was hard of hearing. And she would shout out her sins so loud that everybody in the, in the church would hear her. The priest suggested that from now on she could just write down her sins and just hand him the list, save her the embarrassment of shouting her sins out to the whole church. Well the next week the lady she entered the confessional booth and she handed the priest her list. He looked at it and he said to her he said ma'am, I'm sorry but this is your grocery list. The lady shouted, "Oh my dear, I left my sins at Publix." <laughs> well, we really can leave our sins with Jesus. We really can. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, it's been said, the only sin that God won't forgive is an unconfessed sin. Whenever we sin, we should immediately ask for God to forgive us and cleanse us. And he will. Now, verse 9 prompts an interesting question. We've talked about this before. If the moment we sin, we're saved. I'm sorry. If at the moment we're saved, God forgives all of our sins, past sins, present sins, future sins, and he does, then why do I still need to confess my sins when I commit them? If they're already forgiven, if all my sins are forgiven, why do I need confession? And here's the answer. Our confession maintains a repentant attitude. And that's important for the condition of our soul. See, as far as God is concerned, our forgiveness is assured by the blood of Jesus. But our repentance is nurtured by an honest and consistent and humble confession. Confession is what keeps our hearts in the right place. Well, chapter 2 tells us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Now, don't ever think, oh, since God promises to forgive me, then I can go out and sin with impunity. John is assuring us of God's forgiveness so we won't sin, not so that we will. His forgiveness should make us thankful. It should cause us to live grateful lives. If God loves us enough to forgive us of our sin, then our love for Him should encourage us not to sin. Always remember, this is so important, sin is not so much breaking the laws of God as it is breaking the heart of God. And when you look at it that way, and you really love God, then you'll want to please Him. You won't want to sin. He says, but if anyone does commit sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John was written so that we won't sin. But if we do, we have an advocate. The word literally means attorney, one who pleads our cause. Hey, meet Jesus Christ, Esquire. Jesus is our attorney in the court of God. On the other side of the courtroom, there sits Satan. Revelation 12, verse 10 refers to Satan as the accuser of the brethren. You know, the Greek word devil, it means slanderer. Satan is the prosecutor who wants to condemn you. And understand, Satan has mounds and mounds of incriminating evidence. Oh my. Videotapes of your private sins. Recordings of hateful statements that you've made. Surveillance of your evil thoughts. But just when Satan approaches the bench... To present his evidence, our attorney, Jesus Christ, jumps up and objects. He declares all the evidence inadmissible, for he has already paid its penalty. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, our sin has been totally forgiven and forgotten. I love verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The word translated propitiation, it means place of mercy. Its Hebrew equivalent was the word kippurath, which in the Old Testament is translated mercy seat. The mercy seat was that solid gold lid that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It was on this lid that the priest sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice that staved off God's judgment on the people. Over the mercy seat hovered the glory of God, the Shekinah glory. Under the mercy seat sat the two tablets of the law. His glory was the concentration of his love. The two tablets below declared his righteousness. But between the demands of his law under the mercy seat and the love above the mercy seat, there in between making reconciliation was the blood-stained Lid. It was here that God's kindness and God's justice was reconciled. God's love and God's righteousness met and were reconciled at this slab of mercy. Where the blood of the sacrifice was poured out. In the Old Testament, the mercy seat, that, that solid gold lid, that blood-stained lid, it was the one place on earth that you could go and be assured to find the forgiveness of God and the mercy of God. It was the one place where you had confidence that your sins would be forgiven and that you could obtain the favor of God. And here John declares a new and a radical truth that God's mercy seat is no longer a lid, It's the Lord. For Jesus has now become our mercy seat. He is the place where the demands of God's law have been reconciled with the wonders of God's love. He is our propitiation or our place of mercy. In Christ, the law and the love of God have been reconciled. And now Jesus is the one place on earth where all peoples, as John puts it, the whole world can obtain mercy from God. If you've sinned, you can come to Jesus and find mercy. Verse 3, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. In 1789, Benjamin Franklin, he penned the immortal words, Nothing is certain but death and taxes. And very little has occurred that would cause us to disagree with that. John, John, though, would disagree. For a relationship with Jesus is also a certainty. It's a certainty that we can count on. The word no, K-N-O-W, It appears 39 times in 1 John. John tells us that he writes so that we will know that we know God. When the Christian scientist and statesman Michael Faraday was dying, a journalist came to his deathbed, and he asked Faraday a question. He said, Mr. Faraday, would you care to comment on your speculations on the afterlife? Faraday responded, speculations? Speculations? I know nothing of speculations. I'm resting on certainties. I know my Redeemer lives. And because he lives, I will live also. You see, John wants you to have that same kind of confidence, that same kind of assurance. He wants you to know that you know that you're a child of God. And that's why in the next nine verses, John gives to us a Christian's self-test kit. You know, when a woman wants to know for certain whether she's pregnant, she can purchase a self-test kit. And likewise, if you're wondering, if you're really a Christian, John provides a test that will let you know for certain. And the Christian self-test kit is twofold. First, verses four through six, do you keep God's commandments? And second, verses seven through 11, do you love your brother? John says in verse 4 of chapter 2, He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You know, God has such a potent persona. It's impossible to know him and not be influenced by him. You know, occasionally we run into charismatic people who have a profound impact on us. But this is nothing compared to the hold that God takes on a person's life. If you're not enchanted by his love and intrigued by his ways and desirous of his kindness and longing for his character to be reflected in you, if you don't want to follow God and become more like him, then John is saying here that there's only one explanation to that. You've never really met him. He has that kind of hold on a person who truly knows him. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. You know, in Hosea chapter 11, verse 4, God said of of his influence on Israel, I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. God's love has this endearing, this drawing effect on people. It's his love that produces a desire to follow him. And the more God's love spreads out into my life, the wider its web The more I get caught up in wanting to please Him. When God's love fills my life, it melts my heart. And my utmost desire is to keep His word. This is why John says in verse 6 He who says he abides in Him ought himself also to walk just as He walked. And then verse 7 Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. The law of Moses in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 taught the Hebrews to love. It declares, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But remember, Jesus put a new spin on love. He loved his enemies. He loved unconditionally. His love honored truth and grace. Jesus had a no-strings-attached kind of love. And yet his love was a leash that pulled lost sinners back to God. You know, human love is a clumsy thing. When we love, it looks like a sack race compared to the love of Jesus, which always comes across as a beautiful ballet. To love the Jesus way, John says, was a new commandment. To love was an old commandment, but to love as Jesus loves, he said, that was a new commandment. And thus John writes, Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. If the God of love lives in you, how can you hate your brother? He says, He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. The light of God will shine rays of love into a person's heart. I'm a son of the South. I was born and bred in the heart of Dixie. I was raised in the midst of prejudice, racial prejudice, racial bigotry. I'm ashamed to say it, but I had some relatives in my family who were members in the KKK. As a child, I grew up with this kind of prejudice and this kind of bigotry surrounding me. I had hatred in my heart. But I'll tell you this for sure. The day I met Jesus Christ, he took all that hatred and all that bigotry away. He filled my heart with an overflowing love. And he filled it so full that there was no longer any room for the hatred I once harbored. Instead, instantly, my attitude changed. I had a love for all people, regardless of their race or their color. You know, some Christians talk about being instantly delivered from alcohol, or from tobacco, or from a vile temper, or from drugs. Oh, I was instantly delivered from drugs. God took it all away. Well, you know what? I was instantly delivered from bigotry and from prejudice. The day I gave my life to Jesus, he took all that hatred away. And he filled my heart with such a wonderful love. If you want to know for sure that you're a Christian, there's a twofold test. Do you keep God's commandments and do you have a love for your brother? Here again in verse uh, verse 11, he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John has a two-fold test that we can use to know for sure that we're a child of God. But just knowing I'm a Christian doesn't mean that I'm growing as a Christian. And so verses 12 through 14 now tell us how that we can measure our growth. We know that we're Christians, but how do we know that we're growing as a Christian? Well, John depicts three stages of spiritual maturity. You know, if you were going to a family reunion, you'd expect to see some older folks, some adolescents, some little kids. A healthy family would have representatives of all three stages. And the same is true in the family of God. When we come to church, when we meet for our weekly family reunion, we should always be able to find people at all three levels. There should be little children, and there should be some young adults. And there should be some older parents or fathers. And here John identifies the various characteristics indicative of each of these stages of spiritual growth. Now as we go through these next few verses, and I'm going to read through them and then go back and kind of uh, unpackage them. But as we go through these verses, I want you to try to pick out where you are in your spiritual journey. And what you need to be focused on to get to that next stage of spiritual growth and development. John's song has two stanzas. Let's read it and then we'll break it down. Verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiving you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the father. I have written to you fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Now first, John mentions the little children, or the new believers in the body of Christ. And he says of them that they're basking in their newfound forgiveness, their newfound freedom. They're still relishing the thrill of God's forgiveness. They've also come to know God as their father. They're learning that they can take their needs to him. Little children, both age-wise and spiritual children, are full of enthusiasm. Their sins are forgiven. They know God is their father. They've embarked on this new relationship with God. But even though they're full of enthusiasm, they're also very vulnerable and they're very naïve. And that's why they need to grow up and they need to develop a maturity which brings up the young men or the spiritual adolescents we could call them. John says that they have a hunger for God's word. They feed on it daily. They're armed with the word and they do spiritual battle with the devil. In fact, they relish the fight. Hey, if you're growing from a little child to a spiritual adolescent, one thing will be true of you: you'll have an increasing hunger for God's word. And yet, these folks in their spiritual development, they're adolescents, and so sadly, the hubris and the naivety of youth can also cause them some problems. Teenagers can be divisive, can they not? They assume they know better than their parents. They tend to question authority. They think they can do it better. Mark Twain once said, when I was 16, I thought my dad was the biggest fool on earth. When I turned 21, I was amazed at what the old man had learned in five years. Here's the hope, though, for the adolescent. Given time, given patience, he'll grow. He'll learn to appreciate his elders. And we see this happen in the church. We see the spiritual adolescence. They start to get a little knowledge under their belt. They fight a few battles and they see that God will be victorious. And all of a sudden they start to question the pastor and the elders and those in authority. And they think they can do it better. Again, the naivety and the hubris of adolescence. Given time, given a little patience, they'll grow out of it. And they'll reach that next level of spiritual maturity. John refers to it as the father's. The spiritual parents. John writes of the fathers, because they have known him who is from the beginning. You see, spiritual kids are enthralled with God's imminence, his closeness, that we can call him father, that he is nigh to us. But the spiritual parents, those that have matured in their faith, they're captivated by God's transcendence. That he is not just nigh, but that he is high over us. Unlike kids and teenagers, the adults, they seek God not for what he can do for them. Like a child might seek his father, but they seek God for who he is. They glory in his character and in his beauty. John calls them fathers. You know, in, in life, a dad is someone who stopped living for himself. He now lives for his family. I heard a father defined as a man who now carries pictures where he once carried his money. If you're a dad, you know what I mean. And a spiritual dad is of the same nature. He goes to church, but not so much to get as he does to give. His priority isn't how he can be blessed, but how he can bless others. You know how we need spiritual parents in the church who are able to take in others and look out for other people, not just for themselves. Hey, each of us is at one of these stages of spiritual growth. Let me ask you, are you a little child? Still enjoying God's forgiveness? Still learning that God is your father? Are you a spiritual adolescence? You're hungry for the word? You're fighting the devil in that hand-to-hand combat? Are you a spiritual father? Do you marvel at God's beauty and his wonder? Do you know him for who he is? And do you seek to care for those little children around you? Wherever you're at, that's not the point. The point is, are you moving forward? I think living the Christian life is like climbing up a sliding board in your socks. As long as you're moving up, you're doing fine. But the moment you stop, you'll slide back down. That's why we all need to be moving forward. Well, verse 15, do not love the world or the things of the world. Hey, the world system consists of the priorities and forces around us, that which makes the world go round, and it's diametrically opposed to the values of God. This is why John can so boldly conclude, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then John explains what attitudes constitute the world. For 16, for all that is in the world... And here's what makes up this term we call worldliness, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is not of the Father, but is of the world. Hey, God wants us to feel great and to look great and to even be great, but how do you go about it? Those that seek the lust of the flesh, they want to feel great through physical pleasure, through physical priorities rather than through spiritual joys. Those who lust with the eyes, they measure beauty outwardly rather than inwardly by a person's character. And those that are part of the pride of life, they're trying to make a splash in the here and now rather than living their lives for all eternity. The lust of the flesh lives for physical pleasures rather than spiritual fulfillment. The lust of the eyes fixes on external appearance rather than internal beauty. And the pride of life seeks to make a mark in the here and now rather than the eternal. George Orwell once illustrated the lust of the flesh in a very vivid way. He wrote of a wasp. He wrote this. He was sucking jam on my plate when I cut him in half. He paid no attention, merely went on with his meal, while a tiny stream of jam trickled out his severed esophagus. Only when he tried to fly away did he grasp the dreadful thing that had happened to him. (laughs) But you know what? That's the story of a lot of people people get consumed with the lust of the flesh, with pornography, or with drugs, or with booze, and they don't realize what's happening to them. They're getting cut in half. They're not what God intended them to be. You see, lust carries a steep price. And as we said this morning, the deceptiveness about sin, the chains of sin is that they're too light to be felt until they're too strong to be broken. This is why we need to look past the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. We need to seek a different way to live. You know, the lust of the eyes is just as tragic as the lust of the flesh. Understand, image isn't everything. You know, celebrities today get by on smoke and mirrors. Rather than groom their inner character in their inner beauty, one day they'll stand before God. and They'll be measured by what they are on the inside. And the pride of life believes that the here and now is all there is. It denies that there's another world waiting where we'll be held accountable for how we lived in this one. One day the real living will begin. You know, the biggest need for some people is to see an eternity in their future. And so John is wanting you and I, we as Christians, to come out of the world and this web in which it's so entrapped, and we need to show people a different way to live. We need to show people that real satisfaction doesn't come by gratifying physical desires, but by developing this spiritual relationship and fellowship with God. That real beauty isn't about the glitz and glamour of this world. It's about reflecting God's glory. And real meaning isn't found in temporal pursuits, but in a life that counts for all eternity. Only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. John writes in verse 17, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever." Understand that. This, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, this whole tangled web in which people are in, in trap today, it's all going to pass away one day. It's all passing away, even as we speak. He who does the will of God is going to last forever. After a time in prison, Charles Dutton became a successful Broadway actor. When asked how he transitioned from prison to plays, He explained it this way. Unlike the other inmates, I never decorated my cell. That's what sustained him. That's what got him through. He never decorated his cell. Dutton believed that his prison cell was a temporary situation. He refused to let himself get comfortable in it. And this needs to be our attitude toward living in this world. Guys, the world is passing away. Don't get comfortable here. You're just passing through it. Don't get comfortable in your cell. Rather than get caught up in worldliness, you and I need to seek after godliness. Verse 18 Little children, it is the last hour. And as you may have heard, that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Now, the antichrist is the ominous villain that John will warn us about later in the book of Revelation. The evil ruler who pairs his claws after the church is raptured. He leads the world in a revolt against God. This is the antichrist. But he is the culmination of many, many predecessors, antichrists. In Matthew 24, Jesus predicted that one of the signs of God's final judgment would be a proliferation of leaders that are anti-God and anti-Christ. John saw a rise in the, of deception in his day, and I think it's only escalated since. He speaks of these false teachers. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they may be made manifest that none of them were of us. So often a false teacher starts out in a sound Bible-believing church, yet he becomes proud and haughty. He bends and he begins to stray from and he begins to deviate from the truth His goal is to be novel instead of faithful. He tries to draw numbers instead of win people. He lives to inflate his ego instead of glorifying God. In some cases, the problem, he went out from us, but he never had the proper foundation in the first place. He confessed Jesus, but he never really possessed Jesus. You know, if you're shooting a bow and arrow at a target 100 yards away, if you're a fraction of an inch off at the point of your aim, you could be 10 yards off at the point of the target. And the same is true spiritually. Just a little error in a foundational doctrine can cause enormous deviation later on. This is what happens in the heart and in the mind of a false teacher. Verse 20 But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. Now here's the believer's safeguard against spiritual deception. The Holy Spirit. Throughout the Old Testament, the anointing of oil was a symbol of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And to each of us, the Holy Spirit has been given to teach us and to instruct us. You remember Jesus promised in John 16 verse 13, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit is our watchdog. It's his job to help us sniff out and detect lies and deception. The Holy Spirit's like Google Maps. We get off course and he recalibrates us back into the will of God. He goes on, he says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Now, earlier I mentioned that God preserved John to combat a dangerous heresy known as Gnosticism, and its central feature was its denial of the deity of Jesus Christ, We'll learn more about the Gnostics next week. But know that they built fanciful tales and intriguing theories to support their ideas. They were wrong, but they sounded so good. And here John is telling his readers not to get suckered. They know the truth. They know God's Word and God's Spirit agree on the nature of Jesus. So don't cave into a lie. He's saying that if a man denies the Son of God, he has denied the Father. He says, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Don't be swayed by the nouveau, avant-garde religions. Don't look for the new truth. Hold on to the truths that you've heard and you've learned from Jesus Christ. He says, and this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. The words of Jesus alone give us eternal life. And remember, eternal life is not just a longevity of life. It also speaks to a quality of life. Jesus puts his spirit in you. Your life swells with his resources. He lives out his love and joy and power in you. This is eternal life. The man who knows eternal life will see the smile of Jesus show up on his face. The laugh of Jesus will be heard in your voice. The compassion of Jesus will flow through your hands. You see, eternal life doesn't begin when we die. Eternal life begins the moment that we give our hearts to Jesus Christ. He says, these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. This is amazing to me. John had great confidence in the power and the abilities of the Holy Spirit to discern truth from error and grow us up into the knowledge of God's word. You know, God could have set up a church, one church or one office, to be the official arbitrator of divine truth. That's not what he did. Not at all. Rather than entrust the interpretation of his word to an institution or to a priest or to a pope, he gave each of us the Holy Spirit. God's truth is conveyed through a personal anointing available to all believers. And you know what? The Holy Spirit has corrected the church whenever it's deviated, whenever it's gotten off the path. If God had put it all in one institution or all in one person and they'd gotten off the path, there would have been no correction. But because each of us have the Holy Spirit, the church is self-correcting. As we move through time and as we move through history, and God has preserved the orthodoxy of the church by giving to each of us the Holy Spirit. I mean, look at the church through the centuries. It's been saved from countless heresies. The truth has been safeguarded, not by the faithfulness of one sect or one single order or one particular denomination. No, whenever orthodoxy is threatened, the Holy Spirit stirs up a revival that corrects the problem and brings truth back into focus. When the message gets distorted, the author of the message himself restores the true interpretation. If someone ever tells you that you can't understand the Bible unless you read their literature or listen to them, beware. This is the indicator of a cult. John tells us that we all need to grasp, all that we really need to grasp the Word of God is the Spirit of God. Oh, good Bible teachers can be helpful, but they can also be wrong. Never forget that, including this one. God doesn't want you to put your trust in any human teacher, but in the Holy Spirit. And this is why God has put his anointing within your heart. This is why you should pick up your Bible on a regular basis and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart personally. He can speak to you. He wants to speak to you. Don't always read the scriptures to the grid of what you've been taught by someone else. Let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart afresh. He is our teacher. And then verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Jesus is coming back, and we need to be ready to meet him. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. I don't like all country music, but there's one country singer I like. Every song he's ever written. He's a wonderful songwriter. His name is Paul Overstreet. And he has a song entitled, Seeing My Father in Me. The chorus goes, I'm seeing my father in me. And that's how it's meant to be. And I find I'm more and more like him each day. I walk the way he walks. I talk the way he talks. I'm starting to see my father in me. And this is what John is singing in these first two chapters, that if I'm born again by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of a righteous God, then I'm going to end up living a righteous life. As Christians, people will see our Father in me. And there we have the first two chapters of 1 John.